This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 102 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is Jessica Chastain, the 39-year-old actress who is best known for her work in the films The Help, The Debt, Take Shelter, Coriolanus, The Tree of Life, Lawless, Zero Dark Thirty, Mama, The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, Miss Julie, A Most Violent Year, Interstellar, The Martian, Crimson Peak, and now Miss Sloan. John Madden's new film about the gun lobby and one particular gun lobbyist, played by Chastain, who starts on one side of the issue and ends up on the other. Over the course of our conversation, Chastain and I talk about her journey from humble beginnings to Juilliard, as well as her big break, being discovered by Al Pacino. We delve into her breakthrough year in film, 2011, within which she appeared in six films, two of which received Best Picture Oscar nominations, and one of which brought her a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination. We also delve into her big follow-up to that year in Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty, another eventual Best Picture Oscar nominee for which she received a Best Actress Oscar nomination for portraying the woman who led the hunt for Osama bin Laden. Chastain reveals new information about the extent of her interactions with that woman, as well as what she regards as a coordinated attack against the film during the Oscar season in which it was in competition. We, of course, also talk about the many and varied films that she's done since, and her personal quest to highlight the stories of strong and complex women, like the one she plays in Miss Sloan, going forward, in part through her new all-female production company, which she says will take up a larger portion of her attention in the coming years. And there's much more on top of that, so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
right, Jessica, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you. To begin with, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living, or do they do? Yeah, I grew up in Northern California, and my mom is a vegan chef. My father's a fireman in San Francisco, so we're very kind of not Hollywood at all. Yes, and I believe I recall that your grandmother's been a big part of your life as well. Yeah, my grandmother, she took me to my first play when I was seven years old, and when I went to Juilliard, she moved me to, to school. She flew on the plane and, and helped me unpack my dorm room. And But I first moved to Los Angeles. After school, she and I shared an apartment. We were roommates. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, speaking of just sort of childhood interests, and particularly with regard to entertainment, were movies a big part of your childhood and TV and theater and all that stuff? Or when did that enter the picture? It had always been a huge part of my childhood. I was always watching as many movies as I could. When I had a birthday, I remember my grandfather would always take me to the movies. It was such a treat to go. We didn't have a lot of money, so going to the movies was like an event for us, and and maybe that made it more precious to me. But I always watched television, and I have still haven't gotten sick of it. Yeah. I love <laughs> movies and TV, man. Right, so... As I understand it, you're a pretty quiet kid. And then what happened where, I think again with your grandmother, it was like some sort of literally a turning point, right? That you can point to, that you can remember, where your ideas of what you could be maybe changed? Yeah, I I mean, when I was seven, she did take me to a play and she said to me, you know, this is a professional play, so it means that they're actors and it's their job. And I didn't really understand what that meant say. It was like, okay, it's our job. And then we went into the theater and the lights came up and there was a little girl on stage and she was reading. She was like the narrator. And it immediately started and I was like, this is my job. It never became a question of what am I going to do when I grow up or when I grow up, I want to be an actor. It was just like, ah, oh, this is what I am. This is what I am. Yeah. yeah. How did it evolve from that sort of awakening point to years later auditioning from Juilliard? What happened in the interim that was not only sort of a, an interest or a discovery or whatever, but you were actually putting it into practice. <laughs> I went to public school, so it was an interesting thing because I knew I wanted to be an actor, but you were only in the place if you got good grades, and I didn't get good grades because I really hated school. Yeah. So that wasn't happening, and it wasn't until it was junior high that you know I, I signed up for the drama elective, and and then that drama teacher put me as like the ugly duckling in the play, the ugly duckling. (laughs) And, you know, we did these monologues for this, I think it was the end of my seventh grade year, we did monologues for Northern California District. It was like the state championships Mm -hmm. or something. And I won. And it was really, at that point, it was when I started to think like, okay, you know, this is something I've always wanted to do, but now... I'm starting to have other people acknowledge what, you know, my You remember dream. what that monologue was? <laughs> it was called, it was terrible. It was like in the Sacramento Bee, I think, and it was a column oh, called, Please God, I'm Only 17. <laughs> and it was written in, like, as a person who got into a car accident, a 17-year-old who got into a car accident, and they're rising above their no. body. <laughs> And they're realizing that their whole life is over and now they're... And so my drama teacher had pulled the column and said, why don't you do this as a monologue? 
And so I was up there on that stage crying my eyes out and saying, please, God, I'm only 17. Right. You know, it right. was very dramatic. And you could always tap into your emotions like that, though, even, yeah. even back then? Even back then. And Shakespeare was also, I mean, it seems like you said you weren't that into school, but that's, it doesn't mean you weren't academically curious. Most kids aren't super into Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> I went, you know, there's this thing called the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon. And we went, I think I was a freshman in high school, I think the first time I went. And I saw Marco Baricelli, I still remember his name, play Richard III. And it was the first time I'd ever seen Shakespeare. And it was so incredible because he was playing this villain, but yet he was so seductive in the role. And the language was so heightened. So I could understand a little bit, but I could, you know, it was this... I just was always leaning on the the edge of my seat watching the play unfold. And from that moment on, I just started reading Shakespeare. My grandmother had in her house, you know, you buy like (laughs) books that you don't really read. Yeah, the collected works or something. Exactly, like the really fancy (laughs) looking old books. Right. And so um, there was a, she had one that was the collected works of, of William Shakespeare. I don't. I have no idea what edition or you know that's was cool. it Arden yeah, or Yale or what, but <laughs> it was just this simple cloth-bound book, and I started carrying that around with me everywhere and and reading his passages and that yeah I became obsessed with that so much so that I mean I I really really hated going to high school mm-hmm. and I just I don't know what I thought I was going to do I mean my dream was to go to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival mm-hmm. in Ashland and I still have a keychain that my high school boyfriend gave me for Christmas that was engraved, looking forward to working with you here. (laughs) That's great. And that was my big dream was to work there. So how, as you mentioned, maybe not coming from a lot of means and living on the West Coast and not necessarily having been exposed much to New York, it seems maybe, how do you even begin to think that Juilliard is a place where you should be looking to go for a BFA? Well, it's, you know, my senior year, there was a class trip through the drama department of around New Year's Eve, they were going to New York. And I remember I didn't really have any money. And then I was a high school kid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And my dad was dropping me off at school that morning. And I said, I just said, like, can I have $500 (laughs) for the down payment and I'll pay you back because it was the deadline. And and he wrote that check. Wow. It just kind of like, and he, you know, he didn't have time to talk about it with my mom, and so there was it was very controversial. <laughs> but that trip to New York, I think, it changed a lot in me because it was the first time I did visit Juilliard. You know, it was just one of the stops in this New York trip. But I got to to know the city. We went to plays. Uh, I went to the opera, and I went to Juilliard, and I still at that point didn't think that it was an option for me. I thought everyone was so much more above me that could get into that school. But it really started to expand my horizon, that trip. So you eventually auditioned, you get in. I guess you auditioned out west, right? That was... Yeah, I auditioned. I did Romeo and Juliet at Theater Works, which is a equity house. I was very excited to play <laughs> Juliet, this, this theater. And the guy playing Romeo was going to Juilliard after. I was thinking, well, if he goes... Probably I could go. Right, why right, can't I right. audition for this? And why wouldn't I get in? And so I auditioned for the school in San Francisco, and I got in. And wasn't there some 
Robin Williams element here as well. Yes. Well, the last two years of Juilliard, I got the Robin Williams scholarship, which paid for everything. It paid for books and my apartment and my tuition. And it really made a huge difference in my life and in the life of my family. I mean, we were, everyone was struggling to keep me afloat in New York, including my my grandmother. And people would be sending me, uh, because they'd be sending me boxes of stuff because in New York, it's expensive to even buy like shampoo. Yeah. And it was so much cheaper in Northern California. So we were always, we were trying to do whatever we could to live off of as, as little as little money as you could. Did you ever meet Robin? I didn't. Yeah. No, it's so sad. I, I wrote him some letters my junior and senior year. And then I was in a restaurant a few years after I graduated. And I was telling someone the story and like about how Robin Williams changed my life. And it was a general meeting with a film director, I think, at, a, at like Fred Siegel or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And five minutes after I tell this story, Robin Williams kind of like runs into the restaurant, sits down at a table and and starts eating with these women. And and the film director and I are like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, you have got to go talk to him. I said, yeah, 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 I do, I do, I do. Because, I mean, it's crazy. I just finished that totally. story and he walks in. But I said, you know, I don't want to bother him. I'm going to wait till he stops eating. And, you know, I, I always hear those stories. Yeah, sure. People approach. So... Before he finished eating, before um, the waiters came and cleared the, the plates, he jumped up and ran out of the restaurant. It was like he was he was just late for something right, and had right. 10 minutes to come in and eat a few bites. And I jumped up from my seat and I was going to chase after him. And I was like, no, I shouldn't do that. It's too, I'm too shy or whatever. And I don't want to tackle this actor to the ground. Um, <laughs> but now it's one point, you know, I always look back at my life and it's a, that's definitely a regret I have that... I didn't chase after him because, I mean, he was such a generous human being and he, and he definitely gave without needing to be mm-hmm. thanked. And that's just who he was with yeah. everyone that I've talked to. But it would have been really special to know that I had been able to thank him in person. Well, I think within his lifetime, you definitely acknowledged him in interviews and things. So yeah. I'm sure he may have gotten wind of that. But, when you know, those, I guess, four years at... Juilliard, it seems like you really changed a lot and loved it. And, and I know that to this day, I've, I've seen you, you know, tweet pictures or things of Lincoln Center. It means a lot to you. What kind of transformation happened there that prepared you for when you're then thrust out into the real world as, as someone who has to survive as an actor? What, what were the most valuable aspects of it? It was interesting because I grew up in Northern California where we didn't have a foreign film theater. We didn't have like the orchestra was bankrupt so we didn't you know the the ballet would dance to a tape or like some kind of recording and going to Juilliard and Yo-Yo Ma would be in the elevator with me or Isaac Perlman or Brishnikov is in the cafeteria it's just all of a sudden you can't help you're exposed to so much not just in acting but in all of the arts they were constantly on this board that we had for the students to look at there were free tickets, comp tickets to this off-off-off-Broadway show. And I was always signing up to go to the plays, anytime I had free time. And then there was Lincoln Plaza Cinema, which... The best. The best! And if I ever had a break, I would just go, okay, I've got about two and a half hours, maybe I'm going to get lucky, and I'd run over there and say, okay, what's playing? Not having seen any trailers, no these actors or anything, and I just would walk in and just see something fresh 
for the first time. And that's actually how I saw the piano teacher. Uh, and that was a big influence for you. A huge influence for me. And, in term, you know, for Henneke and with Isabel Huppert. Yeah. And I remember <laughs> leaving that movie theater and going, okay, I don't know. Something has changed in me in terms of what I understand acting to be. I can't articulate it right now. But I know that I've just witnessed something and I've learned something. And, and and it was like that solid for four years. That's great. So you come out, and actually before you you graduate, you I believe were out in L.A. for another one of these sort of. It's funny, like the dipping the toe in New York before Juilliard. Now you're dipping the toe in L.A. And this was pretty significant as well because it at least gave you a little bit of a, a cushion as you entered the real world, right? What what happened during this senior year thing in L.A.? Yeah. Well, I the summer before senior year. I came out, my grandmother was working in Thousand Oaks, and I came out and I stayed with her for a little bit, and I took a couple of meetings. And, you know, a lot of the meetings I, I, people I met with at network television or whatever, they were talking to me, and they said, why doesn't Juilliard come out here for a showcase? I didn't, never heard of showcases. Yeah, I didn't right. know it was such a thing. And they said, yeah, every other school comes out here except for Juilliard. So I went back to New York and I talked to my classmates and I said, you guys, we need to be going to LA for the showcase. Everyone else is doing it. And I wrote this letter and everyone signed it and we sent it into the drama department and then I had a meeting with Kathy Hood and she was like, we can't do it. It's too late. We don't have the money to it. We need, this is things that need to be budgeted. And I don't know, maybe just, it was the beginning of me starting to go no I just I said I said Kathy I don't accept that (laughs) (laughs) I said I know we can find a way and and we can work together and so went back to this with the students and we all ended up paying for our own airfare and you know we created a situation where we did in fact have an LA showcase and and we were the first one that is great and it really in your case yeah did results right it went really well and it's funny because I'm about to work with Aaron Sorkin now Mm -hmm. but at the LA showcase I believe I met John Levin, who was casting for, he was like John Wells' casting director. And I came in there, into the, you know, they saw I did a a scene from this play tape. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Which is pretty, you know, it's pretty hardcore. And it's about rape and and this woman who's a lawyer, and she kind of has this monologue where she eviscerates this guy. And then they said, okay, we want you to meet all the writers of the West Wing. So they flew me back to L.A., and... I went into this room with like 20 people. I've recently told Aaron Sorkin the story. He's like, really? Because he wasn't there. You know, it was like most, for some reason, he wasn't there that day. But I I was in front of all the writers, the West Wing and and John Wells. And I read that tape scene (laughs) with the casting director. And then they offered me a holding deal. And that, for people, you know, who maybe don't know, can you explain what that meant, what that means and what it meant to you over the next few years? I mean, it was a big, big deal. So... Right after the showcase, I got offered this holding deal, which meant that I was going to get paid a chunk of money to only work for John Wells Productions for like nine months. So it wasn't even that long of a commitment. Uh, you're yeah. right out of college. Right. You're you're like, great. So I was living in New York, and they were would fly me back and forth to audition for stuff. And basically, you work off the money. So it's like a credit, right? right? right, right. They give you, no matter what, you're going to get that chunk of money, but then you kind of work for free until you pay off that credit Gotcha. within that nine months. I was on ER. I, I shot a pilot for them. That was your SAG card, right? And that was my SAG card. And the end of nine months, I still had a lot of money left over. Yeah. So I just, I lived on that for a long time. 
And then after that period, though, there was a bit of the what most people deal with, right? Where it's sort of a little bit of a dry spell, right? Did you wasn't there a period where you were finding that it was, you know, you're, you're a Juilliard trained actress, and yet it's not getting you very far? Yeah, right? I remember there was one day when I came to LA and I had to reread for like. These, the cat the casting director's assistant so I had to go through all these steps but it was for something like it was like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something really that I didn't think the character that I was auditioning for because also it was a guest star that I didn't think required that much skill mm-hmm. but I remember having to come in and pre-read for the casting director's assistant then go in for the casting director then go into the producers and it was a lot of stuff like that where how did it work out? I didn't get you that didn't one, get <laughs> <laughs> which was fine. After all that. Yeah, it's fun. But that, that happened a lot. I read an article recently, like maybe a year ago, where a casting assi- assistant wrote an article. She's now, I think, a casting director. Yeah. And she talked about working in New York, and, and she actually mentioned me. And she said she remembered, <laughs> she said she remembered when I would come in, I would have like eight auditions that day. And I'd come in, and she said like, I was a little like mess. I'd be a little sweaty and like I had no makeup on. And then I come in and I like do a really, really good yeah. job. And when I read this article, I couldn't help but thinking like, first of all, what an idiot I was to think like, okay, I'll just go in and act. I don't really need to worry about my makeup. Right, and right, right. Please don't show up sweaty. <laughs> um, but then also too, I, was, I thought, oh, I wish someone had told me that. Told you that. I wonder if it, had, it would have saved me. Many years of rejections. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've seen La La Land yet, but even under the best of circumstances, when you come in there prepared and you're doing it right, it seems that that kind of reminds non-actors that there's always like 20 people that look like you who are also killing themselves for the part. It's just demoralizing. Yeah. And they don't even show you necessarily respect a lot of the time when you're starting out at that in that point. Yeah. Right? I would get sometimes I would get 20 pages to audition with. I'd have so many scenes. It'd be 20 pages. I mean, I think everyone probably knows by now I'm a, I work hard, yeah. right? Yeah. I spent a lot of time researching or working, and I was always I always made sure I was memorized for any audition that I had from the moment I got out of school. No matter what it was, I was memorized. So I would memorize 20 pages and then show up for the audition the next day, and then they'd say, oh, we're just going to read the first scene. <sighs> it's disgusting. Oh, it's just, yeah. you really, it's so... Because also, too, as a person, you don't know... Are you saying that to me because you're running behind and you don't have time to uh, audition this? Or are you saying it to me because the second you're looking at me, you don't think I'm right for the part? And you don't want to say that, like, never mind, you can go away. <laughs> but don't they get, they get a photo or whatever before? Yeah, exactly. They not, it's just disrespectful. No, it's, but... I, yeah, I know. But that it happens a, a lot, actually. Yeah. So the point where that changed, though, was you're doing something off-Broadway, Playwrights Horizon, yeah. right? And what happened there? So I was doing a play, a Richard Nelson play called Rodney's Wife with David Strathairn. And, you know, it was just kind of, there was no money and it was, but it was fun. And I played David Strathairn's daughter who was in the 1960s, who was a lesbian and was secretly having an affair with his new wife. (laughs) And he was some famous actor who was, we were all in Italy. He was shooting like a spaghetti Western. Later adapted for Cinemax or something. (laughs) And um, so it was like this, you know, kitchen sink drama. Right. And I guess Marta Keller had seen it, and she's good friends with Al Pacino. 
And he said, okay, I'm going to be doing Salome again. Is there anyone you recommend? And she says, well, there's this young girl who is doing theater right now that I think you would really like. And that, that obviously worked out. So then what is the effect of, for somebody who was dealing with Buffy the Vampire crap, <laughs> now all of a sudden you're in a play in L.A. with Al Pacino. That's got to bring in a different audience, right? Then Well, completely. Right. But it's always a leap of faith because what happened is I got the audition. I, I was in at the actor's studio in New York and I auditioned and it was this huge thing. And I could tell I was like, the audition's going great. And I, I was so excited and... Um, I met with the producer later that day and he says, okay, definitely want you for this role. We don't know when we're going to do the role. So we just would like for you to hold this time. And earlier that day, I auditioned for, and I met David Mamet on a television show that he was doing. And I really liked him and I really liked the meeting. And I had this situation where, and then they wanted me to test for the television show. But, you know, when you test for TV, you have to sign a seven-year contract. Before they even decide, right? Yeah, before they decide if you get the part. Right. So that night, I had to make this decision. Okay, am I going to wait and be available for Salome? And I said, you know what? Okay. So I didn't test on the Mammoth show. The the play got pushed when we thought we were going to do it because Al took a movie. And I thought, oh, God, I've ruined my life. <laughs> and then we ended up do, we did end up doing the play. And I made no money, of course, in in this show and it was like a year commitment and I right. was prepping for this part but it completely changed my life in in the way of how I, basically Al Pacino was my acting teacher for yeah. a year but also I got to see him go from theater to film which has always been a scary transition for me to understand how the camera works because coming out of Juilliard did you imagine yourself you you saw yourself having both a stage and screen career or you were imagining one or the other I, I mean, I hope to have both a stage and screen career, but I thought it would be mostly theater. Yeah. I mean, my dream was to work at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Right, right. So I didn't imagine, you know, the, the trajectory that would... Ha- I mean, I sure as hell didn't imagine <laughs> this, <laughs> right, to be honest. Right. But, yeah, so I had Al teach, kind of, I got to observe him, and he was my director between theater and film, and then also the exposure that it gave me. We did Salome at the Wadsworth Theater in Los Angeles, and it's Al Pacino, who all these casting directors and all these film directors yeah, want to see. Of course. And then there's this unknown actress playing Salome. Like, who the hell is this? Yeah, yeah. and like, yeah. why is she? How is she sharing the stage right, with Al Pacino? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> and it, and then after that, I just, I got, I started all of a sudden film auditions started pouring in. Right, and Jolene, then a little bit of a break, and then like when it rains, it pours. Right. Yeah. So let's just to remind people because we had. I'm sure you talked about this to death when it was happening, but 2011, six movies came out in which you starred. Tree of Life, The Debt, Coriolanus, The Help, Take Shelter, Texas Killing Fields, like multiple in every festival. Mm -hmm. Number one and number two films at the box office with The Help and The Debt in the same weekend. Nominated for Supporting Actress for The Help, which was also nominated as was Tree of Life for Best Picture. So all of that must have like hit like a train or maybe not, because it actually, they weren't made like in that kind of a quick succession, right? It started with Malik? Yeah, I, I did. So after I did Salome, we did the movie Salome at the same time. Then I did Jolene. Then I had about a year off. And then Tree of Life came, showed up on my doorstep in a way. Because of Salome? No, but I do know that Al and, and Terry had a conversation. Okay. It's always a scary thing casting an unknown as the lead in a film because you're unproven you know it's easier if someone goes oh yeah I worked with them and and 
they're great or they ha- you have a, one film under your belt and I remember my agent at the time was t- saying to me because I was getting close on so many things I was being told it's either you or it's between you and two other girls or you and someone else and it was always going to the other person and I was so discouraged and that year and then she said you know what something big is about to happen because what's happening in your career right now is you're going to all these auditions and you're always ending up it's you or the other person she said it's the second one person takes a risks a risk and cast you right. as the lead then the others will have the everyone's guts. gonna jump yeah. in and that's ex- she was right it's exactly what happened but with malik the, the another scary thing must be that even if you're the lead you don't even know if you're actually gonna be in the movie right he's always yeah. playing around with it till the end but that one I knew I was going to be. Yeah, you had to. Yeah, because I got, when I got the script, I knew, I was like, okay, this is a very important part of his story. Right. And I was there, we shot for four months. I was there shooting every single day except for the last two weeks. So the only reason I, way I wouldn't have been in the movie is if he only used the last right, two weeks. Right, if he changed the whole movie. Right, right. So part of the interesting thing about those parts is that they're also different I, I mean I believe chronologically just to give one example and maybe you can talk about how you approach such a quick transition but to go from take shelter which is sort of like I believe roughly the present day mm-hmm. like disaster situation to the help which is a period piece where you're playing a person <laughs> who looks totally different yeah. what goes into that transition in a very short amount of time well I did that year I did so many movies back to back so I did Coriolanus where I'm like this English rose. <laughs> then I went straight from Coriolanus and did Texas Killing Fields in Louisiana, where I play this Texan beauty queen detective that's actually based on a real person <laughs> that I studied a little bit. Uh-huh. From there, I went to Take Shelter, which what you just described. Mm-hmm. And then I had to go, I loved to go to The Help. And the transition for that character, because I didn't have a lot of time in between, is I just had to, I had to gain a lot of weight. I mean, if you look at, when I look at Take Shelter and The Help back to back, I, you can see the weight that I gained from one film to the next. And you felt you had to do that because she was sort of buxom or whatever? The, yeah, there's, there was a sensuality that she yeah. had to her. And it was 1960, and it was, women weren't forced to be thin right, 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 right. <laughs> in 1960. Right. And like I said, I think it always, it adds to the sensuality. I think the more voluptuous a woman is, the, the more sensual she mm-hmm. no, yeah she was kind of like a Marilyn yeah. type of but of those six would you have guessed that the one that I guess would be the most commercially successful and the one that would get the Oscar nomination recognition would be the help was that clear when you were making it or because at the time who was Tate Taylor I mean Viola was a great character actress but nobody really and Octavia who I think what did, had you lived with her or something no Octavia lived with Tate oh with Tate so there was yeah. right but we all it's interesting because I went and auditioned for this movie. That my agent sent it to me initially, thinking that I was gonna want to audition for the lead character. And I was like, no, I really want to audition for Celia. And <laughs> everyone's like, are you sure about this, Jess? Because it wasn't my type <laughs> right, of right. character that I would play. But I was like, no, I think I could do something with it. And I went and I bought a dress. I like dressed up as the character, and I went in and auditioned. And the casting director told me this. I don't remember this, but he's. I guess. I had a southern accent the whole time. The, of the whole time of the movie? Of the, no, of the oh, audition. the audition. Like, they thought I was from the South. Really? Which I wasn't going in there trying yeah, to be, right. but I guess I was just keeping the character. Right. And after the, uh, we read the first scene, Octavia and I, because she was there at the reading. This was before she was cast, actually. She just stopped and she looked at me and she goes, I love you. <laughs> and I was like, I love you too. I mean, it was so, it was just so clear yeah. that we had a chemistry. 
And from the moment I laid eyes on her, I just loved her. And I think it was clear for ev from everyone in the room that the team, her and I together, would be really special in the film. And I do feel like it was special. Absolutely. When you're now suddenly going from being a, a respected but but ex exclusively pretty much or mostly stage actress, done a few little movies, now you're like the it girl, right? That's what I think that was what every article was, yes, was entitled. Like, no more, please don't yeah, call don't me. call you that. You're past, you're past that. <laughs> don't God. worry. But did you? How did you respond to that? You're now, I mean, it seems from the outside, suddenly a lot more well known. Mm -hmm. You were the you know fashion people couldn't get enough. You were that was a new kind of element of your life. A lot of people wanted to work with you that maybe didn't know about you before. What was that period in the aftermath where you now have to decide what you do with this? What was that like? Well, in the beginning, it was amazing because I was just, I mean, the fact that Gary Oldman would come up to me on the red carpet and say, hey, I'm, my name's Gary Oldman. <laughs> I am I like your work. You're like, what is happening in my life? It, it, so there was a few years of that. Yeah. And then I had a couple years ago, I had strange thing. I had this strange moment where it feels like this job, you're eating cake. Right, you're like you're. You've never had dessert before, and all of a sudden, here someone goes, "Here you go, it's chocolate cake, and you get to eat as much as you want." <laughs> but then you're like, "Okay, please, someone take a slice. Right. You know, I'm ready to share this this yeah. cake." So I've started to make a transition in my career where now I'm, I'm more interested in and excited and happy about creating platforms for other people, like in the Zookeeper's Wife, Johan Heldenberg plays my husband, and I saw Broken Circle Breakdown. Great. Great. Yeah. A movie he wrote. Yeah. I mean, it was a, started as a play he wrote. He was acting in it, and he did this movie. He's a beautiful actor, and I just saw the movie, and he's amazing in this film. And that's what makes me so excited about this film is that people are going to watch it, and then they're going to call Johan to be in their movies. And also, he's Nikki... been chastened. <laughs> <laughs> and and Nikki Caro, who directed it, yeah. you yeah. know. And so I'm more excited about that kind of thing now. And that's what what is. Freckle, Freckle films. films, yes. Yeah. That's a new entity, right? Yeah, it is. It's, it's about a year old. You know, the Critics' Choice Awards. Yes. And I got the MVP award. I remember thinking, like, what am I going to talk about? Because usually when... You, first of all, you don't know you're winning an award ahead of time. So you're, you're kind of not knowing if you're going to talk. So you don't really write a speech. But this, I knew I was going to mm -hmm. speak. And also, I couldn't just talk about one film because there were, it was a body of work. So I talked about diversity in the industry and creating opportunity for women and African-Americans and Asian-Americans and, and all of that and how, you know, I, I really have faith in, in us as a group and, and I can see that when we come together, we can make something beautiful. After I, I made that speech, I got some crazy hate what? on Twitter from some probably crazy people right. that are going to vote a certain way right. in this election. <laughs> which I, I was shocked by. And then I was in London to promote A Most Violent Year, and the journalists were talking, asking me about my speech, and then they said, well, now what are you going to do? Because, you know, if you're, not, if you're part of the industry, you're part of the problem. So I said, okay. And I created this uh, production company, and I am buying material, and I'm hiring writers, and I'm going to act in some things, but I'm not going to act in everything. And I'm, for me, it's uh, about creating platforms for other voices. That's great. Was your first experience being directed by a woman in a film, Zero Dark Thirty? No. I had worked with 
Amy Mann in Texas Killing Fields. Oh, that's right. So, yeah. But with Catherine, who was coming off of just becoming the first woman to ever win the Best Director Oscar, her next project was this, and you get approached about, it was really like hush-hush, right? There was no <laughs> details were leaking out about about the about Zero Dark Thirty, and the whole thing, I, I got the sense for you, the, the real attraction was that this is a woman, Maya, who's not defined by anything except her work, right? I mean, yeah. we don't see, not that she doesn't have other aspects of her life, but she's not somebody's wife or girlfriend or whatever, and so for you to get approached by Catherine Bigelow and to do that project with that specific part, what did that mean? It was wonderful. I knew the responsibility of playing the role when I got the part, but also I had never, I hadn't read any of the dialogue until we were there in Jordan about ready to shoot. So Catherine had, I mean, of course I read it to myself. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying. But Catherine had never heard the words coming out of my mouth. So there was also the pressure of that. What happens if I get there? And then she thinks, oh dear God, I made a mistake. And all of that. I just, it was a, it felt like a, a huge responsibility um, to play that character because even though I don't make documentaries, right. I, you know, everything I'm in, it's work of fiction, sure. but that subject matter needed to be, you need to be very careful. And I knew I had to do as much research and be as authentic as I could. Now, Mark, I guess, met Maya, but were you, was that something that was availed? Was she availed to you? I spoke to her on the oh, phone. Did? Yeah. I don't think I was allowed to say that. At the time, I was afraid yeah. to say it. Yeah, maybe right, we were releasing. Right. But yeah, before we started shooting, I would spoken to her. And was it of any value, or it was more about just shading the character? It was really helpful in creating the interior of the character. You know, I I work both ways because my characters actually look very different. Right. And my inter- the, usually when I'm working on the interior of, of the character, it affects the exterior. It kind of helps me make decisions of how the character is supposed to look. When playing a real person, I much prefer to meet the real person and, and see what color nail polish they wear, how they do their hair, how much makeup are they wearing, what are they projecting to the world, because usually there's two different things. Yeah. It's who they really are, right, right. and then who they're showing. So it was I kind of had to create this whole physical transformation for Maya on my own. Because it was very important, too, that I not look like the real Maya. Yeah, right. Right? Right. Well, so just to, again, stay for the record, people listening, another Oscar nomination that was back, back-to-back years? Back, yeah. Yes, pretty nice. Number one and number two movie again with Zero Dark Thirty and Mama, but that one got sucked into a little bit of controversy. That's when we last sat down and did like a long-form one of these. That was just happening, and I just... Yeah. So I wonder how you process all of that, where you think you're doing a movie that, you know, I, I don't know, did you anticipate any of that? No. It's an interesting thing, this whole Oscar (laughs) (laughs) awards situation. And that was the first time I realized that, wow, it's almost like a political campaign. I mean, people hire strategists. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think when Zero Dark Thirty came out, it immediately, as soon as people saw it, it like won New York Film Critics. It It started winning everything. Yeah. And it was the film to beat. And I think some people set their sites their target it was a target it was a target yeah Yeah, absolutely and the way though that what was where did they most effectively execute that what was the whether or not it was right what they were alleging what was the most effective thing that was used against the movie do you think well i think and this is what actually really upset me what upset me the most is how Catherine bigelow was treated because i remember someone at one point compared her to who's the the woman that had made those 
Lenny, not Lenny Riefenstahl, was yeah. it? Yeah? Yeah. A journalist actually did that. Jesus. And I wanted to just murder everyone. <laughs> I know. I just felt I was so protective of her. And and it was weird that she did not get a nomination that year. It's crazy. This coming off of a win suddenly for a movie that was so acclaimed. Yeah, and she, I'm sorry. And she, you know, she was winning, like I said, right. she won Best Director, New York Film Critics, right. NBR, like... And then all of a sudden, the media, some, I believe that there was a takedown. And From another... Yeah, and, and I think, too, like, as we can see every day when we go into the news, anything salacious, like, people pick it up. And, and for someone to try to reinterpret her film and what she's made, because Zero Dark Thirty, it's, it's a study on revenge. Mm-hmm. What happens to a person when your entire life becomes about death and revenge? And there are scenes where... My character is ordering strikes, and she's sitting on the phone laughing, and her feet are up on the table. I mean, there's this detachment to that. And I think the wonderful director that Catherine is, she has such a subtle hand, and she doesn't ever want to make message movies. She never wants to hit anyone over the head with anything. She wants to pose questions and have you answer them. And I think because she didn't come out there and say either this is a pro this film or pro that film, it left it open to attack. And, and maybe from both sides or yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. So the last two things before Miss Sloan, and then we will hammer down on the, the exciting new stuff, but just your space movies, 2014, Air <laughs> Cellar, 2015, The Martian, you're working with Christopher Nolan and then Ridley Scott. These are massive movies, which you had said early on, I think, even the ones that were released by studios were not studio movies. So it took a while before you were thrust into this kind yeah. of big apparatus. Now it's happening. What were those experiences like and maybe also compare and contrast the responses because they people felt passionately in mm. about both. Yeah. I for me, I'm very interested in films that create discussions. Mm-hmm. I don't want to lecture anybody. Even you know, with Miss Sloan, I want to pose questions and have an audience show up and, yeah. and talk about it. And that's what I loved about Interstellar. I don't feel like it was serving a thesis up to you. It was forcing you to lean forward and think and and look at your life and look at the idea of are we the only ones here? I loved that it came out alongside Kip Thorne, who's a leading theoretical physicist, who was a producer on our film. He wrote a book called The Science of Interstellar, and it explained all the science (laughs) and how Chris used it in the film. And I think that was, it was interesting to have people say to me oh yeah but it just wasn't so it wasn't realistic and I said but it was that's what even that's what's great about it there's poetry in science and in physics and we sometimes think that it has to be black and white is the Martian maybe just the, the more accessible version of Interstellar yeah I mean I'm mean, they're completely different, different sure, films sure. absolutely but I knew when I was making the Martian that it was definitely more accessible film. yeah Except I will say that there's a female commander of a space mission to Mars. So yes, the more acceptable film still shows, like, in the future. It might be a little. <laughs> there's going to be some progress. Hopefully it doesn't take that long, but yeah. <laughs> and then you mentioned the MVP award, which was created, and you were the first recipient at the Critics' Choice. That was because the same year as Interstellar, we had the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, which was so unique, and I, I love that, where you're basically, I don't know how many people... Is it available for streaming now? It's actually on Netflix. Okay, both for because here's the key: all like, three versions. All three. So you, uh, you, I believe, if anyone wants to go watch it, watch Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, him, and then watch the Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, her. That's, That's what my I did preferred too. order. And then them. 
don't watch. Don't them. watch them. Please just just <laughs> pretend it never right. happened. <laughs> but that was it's such a I think it's unprecedented the whole mm. approach to it. And then Miss Julie with Liv Ullman was the third, and then Most Violent Year with your old classmate Oscar yeah. Isaac. And any thoughts on collectively that these three indies in one year with such different projects? I love. I think all three of them are amazing. But what? Anything to say about that? Well, they, I mean, you never know when you're making a film. You never know when it's going to come out. You don't know what's going. It's going to come out alongside, or or what the environment's going to be when it happens. And I, I remember thinking that year. Gosh, I wish I didn't have so many movies out at the same time. But it was exciting to have the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby and Miss Julie in a most violent year and have these really special independent films that were so completely different filmmakers that I absolutely yeah. adore and I think are have a very promising um, future. Um, and we're going to hopefully see them mm-hmm. for many, many years to come. And then, you know, also to have the behemoth of Interstellar. Yeah, in one year. Yeah, it was pretty great. So Miss Sloan was made not that long ago, right? It's actually a quick turnaround, right? Yeah, it's amazing. And yeah. It's this... another Zero Dark Thirty moment because I, I made Zero Dark Thirty in the spring and then it came out. It came out in the same year. That's yeah. amazing. So just to kind of set the scene, and please correct me if you disagree with the framing of any of this, but... Basically, a movie about the DC gun lobby and how a person who starts on one side of the issue winds up on the other, and but just a very passionate all business person. <laughs> and this is now coming out in a highly contentious election season, in which guns are obviously, as has long been the case, at the center of of very passionate debate. How did this one cross your radar, and what were the considerations before saying yes? Was that mm. was the real world climate a factor at all? I well, I first read the script. I knew John Madden was circling it, and I wanted to find another project with him because I loved working with him on the debt. Yes. And uh, and then I started to read the script, and I thought, Are you sure this is an Aaron Sorkin? Because <laughs> it really felt yeah. like that kind of story in, in that kind of character and, and and dialogue. And then I was fascinated by what I was learning about our political system and the ins and outs, but also most of all. I liked that it was a political thriller and that I didn't know what the char- this character was going to do next. And I thought, how interesting to play that because after you see the movie once, then you kind of go, oh yeah, and you can look back at scenes. But when playing the character, she's playing two games. She's playing her main game, right, her long game, and then she's playing the game she wants everyone to see. Or, you know, she's like, so she's hiding a lot of things, but she's always planning things out. Like there's a scene where someone gets fired and the scene right before you can see her prepping for that scene. So In retrospect. Yeah, 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 like when you watch the movie again, right. you know what's, what's happening. Right. And there's all of that. And I knew that was going to be really fascinating to play as a character. When a character is not quote unquote likable, mm-hmm. is that, what's that like? I mean, she's obviously very ambitious, yeah. very focused on her career, very driven and ruthless. But at the same time, there are plenty of men that have played mm-hmm. characters that fit that description that that is not something that is the focus of every piece about the film as seems to be maybe the, the case here. So, you know, I just wonder, were you basing her on any real lobbyists? And also, did what do you make of these, the way that we, we describe people like this? Yeah, I definitely, I didn't know anything about lobbyists, so I had to do a lot of research. And I read Jack Abramoff's book 
And I thought, this is a good place to start. And I learned so much about the money right. in lobbying. Right. I assumed my character would wear no makeup and just be in the same clothes for three days. But then when I went to D.C., I realized, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> These women, they were very different than I had imagined. And we talked about everything. We talked about drug use in D.C. We talked about personal lives. We talked about sexual harassment. We talked about less than 10% of lobbyists are women. What is that like to work in this town that's mostly men? And you need things. And how, how do you navigate those waters? And then when I... We just had a Q&A a week ago. And one woman raised her hand. This is in D.C.? Um, no, this was in London. Oh, in London. Okay. One woman raised her, her hand and she says, I just want to thank you so much for playing a character like this. We never see women like this that are ambitious and, um, you know, capable and all of this. And then right afterwards, a man raised his hand and said, I'm sorry, I wasn't going to ask a question, but isn't she a psychopath? <laughs> <laughs> that ca- encapsulates. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen the difference between men and women. And then also you look at this current election and after the very first debate, the criticism for Hillary Clinton was she's overprepared. I've never heard in my life right. a person say that about a man in any job. He's overprepared. I, I, I'll just tell you right now, I am overprepared. Right. I want to be overprepared yeah. for anything I do. I, I, I see it as someone who has great respect for their job, and I really admire that in other people. Well, they also they didn't like that she doesn't smile enough. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, anyway, yeah. But she but, smiles plenty. Let's yeah, see. She smiles yeah, plenty. Right. But I think what it is is that society isn't used to seeing a woman be overprepared, be one step ahead, be ambitious, because it, those women that have been are the ones that are difficult, the ones that are the B words, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and And I think we need yeah. to, I'm hoping that this election and movies like Miss Sloan coming out will change our ideas of what a woman has to be. And what have you? Got, I know the movie's still rolling out, but have you had much feedback yet from the general public? Is it the kind of thing where obviously it's such a divisive issue that it's dealing with? Do you find that you're getting, you know, pats on the back, or or alternatively, you know, not pleasant things? <laughs> I haven't had anything crazy happen, thank God. And and the funny thing is, I thought it was going to be more about. The Second Amendment, people would be coming forward and talking about that. But all of our Q&As, no one brings up the gun issue, mm-hmm. the gun debate, which I find surprising. Um, mostly they bring up her, her, the character, and what she does and how she tricks people and the twists and turns in the films that they didn't see. And I've come to realize that the gun debate could be anything in this movie. It could be about climate change. Mm-hmm. It could be about immigration. It could be about anything because that is an example for something else, and which she talks about at the end of the movie, about the political system being broken. And that was a huge surprise going into these Q&As. So last thing is just this. We, when we did this three years ago, we ended it by saying, all right, what's the sort of state of Jessica Chastain right now? What's your outlook? <laughs> what, you know, sort of what are you happy with? What, do you, what would you like to do more of or less of or be different in the future? And so here we are, November 2016, the week before this election that we're talking about. And just what's the, you know, for, give, give us, buy us the next three years. Hopefully it won't be that long before <laughs> we, but what's your outlook? Ta- yeah. Well, the next three years, I hope I've got some of my projects up and running. I hope to introduce the world to some incredible artists. I've, I'm probably going to act less. I'm feeling like my career is starting to transition into something else. I'm I'm wondering maybe if I'm more interested in producing and maybe even directing. Yes, of course, I'll always act, but 
I have noticed I'm more interested in putting the spotlight on someone else. And maybe it's just because it's been a really exciting, intense mm. five years. And I'm like, you know, it's okay. I'm, I'm happy to share this with other people. So maybe in the next three years, I'll be a huge Hollywood producer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing it. Thank you so much. Thank Appreciate you. It.